0: This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other Close Readings series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our Close Readings subscription, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings, or click on the link in the description.
1: Welcome to Close Readings, a series of conversations about modern poets who wrote in English, drawing on the rich archive of critical essays and reviews and other pieces that have appeared over the years in the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry, and I teach English at Oxford. And I'm joined today, as usual, by Mark Ford, poet and professor of English at University College London. And today, I'm pleased to say that we're also joined by Joanne O'Leary, editor at the Review, whose expertise in Dickinson has borne fruit in a rich piece about Dickinson's life and also afterlife, which was recently published in the paper. The first thing I'd like to ask you both, I suppose, is why we're talking about Dickinson at all. This series of podcasts is basically devoted, uh, at least in its in its first inspiration, to 20th century poets, modern poets. Dickinson dies in 1886, and yet when we discussed it, we all thought that she would fit into the series really well. Mark, why do you think she constitutes a kind of modern poet in a way?
2: Dickinson is fascinating from any number of angles. And if on the one hand you can see her as a kind of illustrating many of the ideals of American history going up to her lifetime, Uh, the fascination of her work has mainly been felt in the 20th century. That uh, she didn't publish in her lifetime, then three volumes of poems came out in the 1890s, but in a very different form to the ways in which she she, her manuscripts survived uh, and were discovered after her death. And then the history of her reception in the 20th century is one of the most interesting stories. I think that 20th century poetry has to tell. So one of the reasons we're talking about Dickinson is because she didn't have much impact in her own period, but she has had enormous impact on 20th century American poetry and British poetry, but particularly American poetry by women writers such as Adrienne Rich, whom we've covered, Sylvia Plath, whom we've covered, that um, Dickinson stands as the kind of ancestress to those poets. And it's very instructive to look at the terms in which both in which she's edited, the ways in which her work is presented to the public, because of course uh, it's these seven one thousand seven 1,789 poems survive in manuscript and there's all different ways of representing those manuscripts as poems in print culture, but also now electronically on the um, Dickinson Electronic Archive. So there's all kinds of different ways in which her work has percolated throughout the 20th century and the 21st century as well. And It links very much to the ideals of modern American poetry, particularly, I think, in its indeterminacy, the ways in which it's hard to construe a Dickinson poem, what exactly is happening in this poem. And yet there's a a kind of fascination, an attempt to, one wants to try and work out and uh, respond to the kind of weirdnesses as well as the kind of the bits that are kind of clearer.
1: And Joanne, what do you makes Dickinson feel like a modern poet rather than the Victorian poet that, literally speaking, she was.
0: Well, I was struck by um, the article that Tom Poland wrote for the paper in 1987 where he quotes Helen McNeil, who says, you know, the whole concept of what poetry is and can do changes when you take Dickinson into account. And so I think that sense in which mythology surrounding Dickinson and her work have come to be definitional of what we think of as the lyric poem, particularly as it was characterised throughout the 20th century. So ideas about introspection, about you know returning to the moment in which the poem was written, about process, all of those things which have influenced the way we think about lyric theory. Dickinson becomes definitional and very much part of that.
1: Well, we'll we'll come back to thinking about the ways in which she she moves from being this rather peripheral eccentric figure to being an exemplary and representative figure, perhaps, uh, towards the end of our conversation this morning. But let's start back in 1830s New England. Um, She's born in Amherst, Massachusetts. um, And it's important to understand, I suppose, isn't it, that, that she's born into actually quite a patrician New England family. Her father's a congressman, she lives in what, to judge by the photographs, is an absolutely immense pile called the Homestead on Main Street in Amherst. She gets an excellent and presumably quite expensive education. But then after just a very brief time at Mount Holyoke, she returns to Amherst. And with the exception of one trip to Westminster, to Washington, I mean, and one trip to Philadelphia, Amherst is where she stays. So could you, Joanne, give us some sort of sense of her origins, what, what it was what Amherst was like, what the Dickinson family was like.
0: Yeah, so she's the the second of three children. She appears to have been quite jealous of her brother Austin, um, who inherited her father's law firm and himself had sort of writerly aspirations. She's quite close with her sister, Lavinia. Um, After the 1860s, when she travelled to Washington to have some medical treatment for her eyes, she seems to become... Increasingly seclusive um, and reclusive, and so that's the kind of image of Dickinson as a you know the solitary spinster who doesn't leave her room that you know a lot of readers will be familiar with. But it's also quite misleading. I mean, she corresponded very, very widely. Um, I think we have about a tenth of her letters exist in print. Her sister burned hundreds of them, so we have about a thousand letters, um, and that's thought to be about a tenth of, of her output. But she preferred to correspond with people rather than to meet them in person. You know, she has this wonderful idea that immortality and letter writing have something in common. They have no corporeal friend that, you know, she enjoyed the company that on the page as she could create it and call it into being. So, yes, she was very uh seclusive, but you know, that, that happened as, as time went on. Um, in her earlier years, you know, she was quite vibrant and enjoyed enjoyed socialising and all of those sorts of things, but increasingly devoted herself to her poems and you know, sat at her 18-inch desk, and you know, that was that. She read very widely, you know, the, the, the house had an enormous library and you know, subscribed to the Atlantic, the Springfield Republican, and all of those sorts of things. And, and she took an interest in what was going on. I mean, at 16, she writes to um, her brother Austin from Mount Holyoke asking, you know, who's who's the uh, nominee for president? I've been trying to find out since I got here and nobody will tell me. And has the Mexican War ended? And if so, how? So this idea that, you know, she wasn't interested in what was going on in the wider world is is kind of isn't quite representative, I think.
1: Mm. So it's the first of many contradictions I suppose we're going to come across that she's at once reclusive but also rather sociable, even if sociability takes a very kind of textual or writerly form. Amongst those early friendships, Mark, uh, the friendship with Susan Gilbert seems the most important, perhaps. Could you say a little bit about the role that Susan Gilbert plays in Dickinson's life and, and sense of herself?
2: It's a very complex and in some ways rather unknown area, the extent to which Dickinson and Susan Gilbert, I, I don't think anyone can define accurately the nature of their relationship. Um, Susan Gilbert married Austin Dickinson, I had to be persuaded to, and she and Emily were very close, and there was a there was and a house was built next door to the homestead, which um, I've been to. And it's absolutely terrific place to kind of wander around and have a look at. It is rather palatial. Uh, the Evergreens next door is, is slightly less palatial, but uh, Austin Dickinson and Susan Gilbert Dickinson lived there, and. A lot of Emily's poems were sent across the hedge, as they used to say, and Susan would engage in kind of correspondence about these poems, and the the intensity of their relationship can't really be sort of underestimated. And in terms of the circle to which Dick- with whom Dickinson corresponded it was i mean it was a very very literate culture a very writerly culture that that she existed in and had grown up in that puritanism is a very kind of writerly culture you write everything down um and there's a, a sense in which she has a poem which is this is my letter to the world that never wrote to me but the world wrote to her all the time and she wrote to the world all the time and that sense of an economy an epistolary economy happening was really vital to the ways in which the poems kind of channel emotions and express those emotions. And these are private letters, but they were letters that also would be read out to relatives. So we're we're Talking about a kind of domestic economy in the different houses with whom she corresponded. And uh, her idiosyncrasies were obviously well known and recognized. But I think Susan does play a a key part in what we'll come on to. We'll come on to the uh, aspects of the publication later. But it is important to keep in mind, you've got the homestead and next door to it, the Evergreens with Austin Dickinson and Susan and their three children. Uh, And in the homestead, you've got Lavinia, Emily, father and mother till the father dies, mother has a stroke, uh, and it's Emily and Lavinia uh, and Austin living there.
1: So by the time we get to um, the early 1860s, Dickinson has become that that reclusive person that that Joanne's been talking about. And then in 1861 to 5, she has this intense burst of creativity, doesn't she? She writes something like more than 900 poems, so more than half of the total number of poems she ever writes seem to be from this period. And as we're going to go on to discuss, I'm sure, lots of these poems revolve around some sense of damage or, or despair, or something that in modern parlance we might think of as post-traumatic or registering, you know, the aftershock of some kind of catastrophe. And lots of biographers have speculated about what exactly the the problem was. But we can't know. Presumably, it, it remains a secret that the poems are keeping to themselves.
0: Yes, I think it's no, it's no coincidence either that you know this intense period of um, creativity overlapped with the Civil War. You know, early editors Thomas Johnson, for instance, um, are very keen to you know suggest that you know, he says Dickinson did, had no held no view of history and did not live in it. But of course, she's. She's, you know, extremely disturbed when, you know, Fraser Stearns is, you know, a friend of Austin's, dies in the Civil War. Um, The poems never deal with the the subject directly in the way that somebody like Whitman did. But I think that, you know, that sense of death and despair and and brokenness that kind of characterises the work has some sort of oblique relation to the period in which she lived.
1: One of her most famous poems, of course, is I Felt a Funeral in My Brain and Mourners to and fro. Uh, which contains a reference to a plank in reason breaking, and uh, Dickinson says, "And I dropped down and down." This is interpreted by Helen Wendler as a as a kind of barely encoded account of um, a mental breakdown of some kind, and it, it was a very interesting su- suggestion that that as it were a, br- a breakdown within Dickinson is is mirroring a kind of greater national breakdown on the on the American stage. What What do you make of her um, mid-century Americanness mark? how do you How do you see Dickinson relating to the pressures of her age in that way?
2: I think it's it's really fascinating that the two nineteenth-century American poets that we read are Whitman and Dickinson, who were both at this very oblique angle to the ages in which they lived. I mean, Whitman tried to figure himself as the spokesperson, the prophet, the orator of democratic America, um, and he embraced America in the kind of widest possible terms. And Dickinson did the opposite. So it's this really sort of neat complementary set of antitheses, um, and the ways in which Dickinson channeled American history are all. Is oblique, and there, the the one phrase which I think we can all agree will can apply to Dickinson's poetry is that it's oblique. It never tells us exactly what is going on. It tells the truth, but tells it slant. To quote from a famous. Poem. But, um, as Joanne was saying, they were a very literate household. They took all the magazines. Uh, Emerson would come to lecture and would stay next door. The Evergreens. I mean, um, Dickinson didn't want to meet him, although she kind of worshipped him. And I think Emersonian ideals of self-reliance are very much also an influence or an inspiration for, for Dickinson in terms of her concept of selfhood because However much we try and open the see the poems as panoramic or as somehow expressing uh, American identity, they do th- do so through traveling through her own uh, forms of introspection, so the extent to which Americanness is encoded there, and she used to sign her letters sometimes America," which is a sort of winsome or annoying habit however you want to think about it, so that that sense of her seclusion and her resistance to convention uh, in some ways is as extreme as Whitman's. And it involves also the ways in which she responded to the conventions of poetry, that her poetry doesn't look like anyone else's uh, before or since in the similar way that Whitman's doesn't really resemble anyone else's. Um, uh, So they're immediately identifiable as a Dickinson poem and the way that it conjugates states of interiority with a kind of fineness of discrimination which is kind of overwhelming at sometimes. You follow, you track her into extremes of despair or joy or erotic celebration. Wild nights, wild nights. Um, we don't know if you had any wild nights, mm-hmm. but she was certainly moved to celebrate wild
1: nights. Well, I think on that point we ought to have a poem, wouldn't we? Joanne, would you like to read us uh, a poem? Perhaps It Might Be Lonelier, which you, you write about in your piece in the LRB that I refer to, at the beginning, and uh, describe as a you know a particularly sort of acute and and rather harrowing self-portrait of uh, Dickinson at, at this point.
0: It might be lonelier without the loneliness. I'm so accustomed to my fate. Perhaps the other peace would interrupt the dark and crowd the little room too scant by cubits to contain the sacrament. Of him, I am not used to hope. It might intrude upon its sweet parade, blaspheme the place ordained to suffering. It might be easier to fail with land in sight than gain my blue peninsula to perish of delight.
1: Well, that certainly bears out the point Mark was just making, doesn't it? And that no other poet could conceivably... <laughs> have written that either stylistically or, I suppose, even thematically, really. In, in your piece, you talk about the way that that the poem shows us, as it were, the virtues of solitude, while also kind of deploring the, the devastations of loneliness. Could you say a bit more about that? It's very interesting, that, that idea of solitude in, in the Dickensian universe as being in some way a kind of enabling thing as well as an isolating thing.
0: Yes, I think, um, I, I think I describe it in the pieces, you know, this fear that she had that um, society would force her to, you know, fix an identity. And she did think in the, you know those Keatsian terms of negative capability, it was important to her that she could occupy several personas, as it were. I mean, she writes to Sue about this. And she says, you know, if I stopped to think of the figure I was cutting, it would be the end of me. And so solitude enabled her to to project these sorts of imaginary selves but I think it was also a quite painful imposition and you know she felt it quite keenly but there's a sense in which she needed that pain or that suffering or that isolation it was one of the preconditions for her of creation and I think that's captured you know captured very well in that poem and the same year you have you know Sam Bowles who was the editor of the Springfield Republican with whom she often corresponded, writing to Austin and since brother complaining uh, about her seclusion and says, you know, to um, the Queen recluse, my special sympathy that she's overcome the world. So, you know, people were quite barbed too toward her.
1: And that that resistance to, um, as it were, the, the social nature of identity, Mark, do you think we should relate that to uh, issues of, you know, mid-century American gender politics, or is that narrowing it too much?
2: It's interesting that she didn't actually engage in sort of... She wasn't at 1848 Seneca Falls Convention um on Women's Rights, and that um, her concept of selfhood fits in... To, to a large extent, to Emersonian ideals of self-reliance and that poetry was the means whereby you would project all these possible other selves. I dwell in possibility, uh, a fairer house than prose, and she kind of fused poetry and possibility. So I guess one of the things that strikes any kind of... R- anyone who's read all through Dickinson's oeuvre, is the extraordinary imaginative freedom and scope and diversity and range of self-projection available there. And the, the paradox was that by uh, refusing to fulfil a particular kind of social role, she was liberated into a kind of poetic, a sense of poetic possibility. And it actually sort of fits in with American heroes like Huckleberry Finn, who only, only feels happy when he's on the river uh, escaping with Jim and so on. So the notion that the American selfhood existed by evading social conventions and also evading definition is one which can be sort of illustrated time and again by her self-figurations. Um, what I suppose is, is interesting for us is why they matter. Why do these self-figurations which are kind of quirky and original, why they have gained such a hold on readers. And the first volume that she published was popular and sold out. It went through, what, three or four editions, was it, Joanne? Mm.
0: Yeah, it sold out three three editions between November and December 1890, which really surprised the publishers who, you know, really felt like they were taking a punt on this sort of extremely eccentric poet and you know she'd been subject to rigorous editing and her work had been you know conventionalized in a way that later critics would be would come to be extremely dismissive of and critical of but you know at the time editors saw this as you know really experimental work and something they weren't sure the public were, were ready for but it, the public lacked it up really um which is interesting in itself
1: um Tom Paulin in that in the contribution to the LRB that you mentioned earlier Joanne, talks about um, the poetry being moved by what he calls a battle against the father. Um, and you quote in your piece a, a good bit from Camille Palia, where, where she, she says it's possible to, to read Dickinson in a feminist way that's sort of too sentimental or sentimentalising, as, a, as um, Dickinson as a victim of male obstructionism and so on. I wonder where you locate yourself on, on, on that question of the relationship between Dickinson and a kind of proto-feminist um, poetry.
0: Yes, I mean it's interesting, isn't it? She, um, as Mark alluded to, you know, she took no real interest in um, in the feminist movement. I mean, I think Christian Miller suggests that she didn't actually like other women very much. But you know, her her poems do radically deconstruct what she saw as a, as, a, as the patriarchal order that governed nineteenth-century verse making, and you know, you can see that throughout the kind of letters and the pronoun she chooses to use when she speaks about the orthodoxies of the day. But she also, and, and I kind of talk about this in the piece, seemed to crave the orthodox and crave convention because that was the benchmark of conformity against which she could push and define herself. So we see this, you know, she reaches out to Higginson in uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, of course, um, you know, man of letters, abolitionist, himself actually great canvas a lot for women's rights and things like that. But she reaches out to him after he has written a letter letter to a young contributor, a piece in The Atlantic, which is encouraging uh, young writers, particularly women, to write and publish their work. And, you know, asked him for guidance. And it's this extremely kind of disingenuous letter, which she fashions herself, he he says, you know, as a soft and kind of breathless child. But, you know, when he suggests that she modify her verse in any way, she's absolutely resistant in every instance. <laughs> um, and yet she yep. continues to send these letters saying, but, you know, but will you help me? But will you give me advice? Um, and she calls him, you know, my preceptor. And she says, you say, you, you do not understand me. Men say that to me, but I thought it was a fashion. And yet that she, that she kind of needs this dialogue, that she needs to keep this relationship Intact and keep it going and sustain it is itself interesting and and it and I think it just shows how interest how interested and in authority she was and and that she needed something to break or dismantle really so yeah I think she I mean she profited from that's what Pellia says she profited from this kind of disparity
1: so one of the things Mark that she's resisting which is perhaps most idiosyncratic most original is is the idea of print altogether you alluded to this a little bit earlier on and we should try and convey to our listeners shouldn't we that the corpus of poems as she experiences it is is a is a vast collection of bits of handwritten paper with a tiny handful of poems seeing their way into print in in newspapers um, but otherwise um, nothing in print
2: Yes, I mean, that's 10 poems that that were published in the day and they were robbed of her, that punctuation was imposed upon them and she didn't like that. She also tied her poems together into sort of what... Loomis Todd called fascicles I think she Mabel Loomis Todd whom we'll come on to in a minute invented that particular term for these little booklets so there's a kind of home industry aspect to the ways in which the the Dickinson workshop functioned and she stitched these things together and she may have ordered them and scholars dispute the extent to which the order matters or doesn't matter but there are many versions of the same poem but she also wrote on on any old bits of paper that came to hand on envelopes on shopping lists on bits of chocolate wrapper (laughs) and And uh, these kind of scraps, as they were called, were preserved, fortunately. And these, whether they're finished poems or unfinished poems, we don't know to what extent, what status they had in Dickinson's own mind. But it does tie into that notion of which I think is a very fundamentally American one, of, of poetry is an ongoing process. Poetry is not something finished or in the way that a Keats ode is finished and printed and done. That the American ideal of a poetry, which is endless and without conclusion, to use one of her terms, and that she, like Whitman, fits into that notion of poetry somehow being... Um, uh, resisting convention and prolonging itself endlessly and without any kind of, guess, without conclusion.
1: In his um, LRB piece about one of several editions of Dickinson that have appeared more recently, Danny Carlin makes uh, the point that the decision to keep all these things in manuscript, to keep all these things as handwritten, as it were, homemade objet, um, is, a, is a very sort of purposefully kind of tendentious um Stri- striking up a very sort of purposefully tendentious relationship to print and and she does speak doesn't she on a number of occasions on uh, about publication as being a, a, a sin almost publication is the auction of the ma- mind of man she says in one poem doesn't she it reduces the human spirit to disgrace of price as though it kind of monetizes the imagination in a way which is you know morally objectionable how do you, I mean, either of you, how do you, how do you read that resistance to publication within her whole kind of imaginative vision?
0: It's interesting. I mean, so the 10 poems um, that were published in her lifetime, as, as Mark said, you know, none of them were published with her express permission, you know it was a case of Sue slipping a poem to Samuel Bowles. They were all published anonymously and, you know, were regular regularised and, you know, conventionalized And she didn't like that, as Mark said. Um, she's embarrassed when one of her poems appears in um, a newspaper because she's told Higginson, you know, publishing is is not something that she's that she's interested in any way. It's, you know, Higginson suggests at one point that she delayed to publish and she says, publishing is as foreign to my mind as Furnament to Finn. And so there's that aspect to it and 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 it was a very male culture and i think you know the auction of the mind of men is significant but you know there was a period where she i think in the 1860s very briefly when she's in contact with thomas niles who will eventually become the publisher who publishes the first the first volume in the 1890s and she sends him three poems and he says well i don't like these very much but maybe send me some more and we could think about a volume and the phrase he uses is if you were to give them to the world through the medium of a publisher and i think that phrase itself set off alarm bells for her and and, you know and she withdrew and she never again um as far as we know made an attempt to to get her own work into print but you know as mark says in his piece there are degrees okay so it's you know you can be interested in the manuscripts but some of the the pro-manuscript movement, thats to use Mark's phrase, you know, this attention to the width of a letter and the, you know, precise amount of space between one letter and another, you know, this kind of strange fetishism of the handwriting can seem very strange and in some ways can seem to kind of obscure the larger, you know, what's at stake really um, in the larger sense Mm. of some of these poems. And it can seem a little silly because, of course, as many of these poems she you know, wrote out many times. She sent them to Sue. You know, she she circulated them within her her own group of of correspondents and and her her handwriting was not identical on each occasion. So it's it's odd.
1: What do you think about that, Mark? Your your piece was a review of, and partly a, a, a review of a, a book called The Gorgeous Nothings, and maybe you could just describe to listeners who haven't come across that extraordinary book what it is because it does give. Very good example, doesn't it, of the way in which these, these sort of Dickinson relics have become, as you say in your piece, you know, regarded in a kind of hagiographic way.
2: Yes, it's a coffee table book that produces wonderful photographic reproductions of 52 of 52- Envelopes on which Dickinson had scribbled down jots of, jotted down bits of poems or maybe complete poems. Uh, and the envelope is quite a sort of interesting thing because an envelope signifies sort of transmission or, or sending of the poem to someone. And uh, there is a way in which writing on an envelope. Is is inherently a quite sort of interesting medium on which to imprint a poem, which then does get sent or doesn't get sent, but has been preserved. I suppose when when I think of the, the the aspect of Dickinson's processes of writing poetry and of living, I have a kind of, we everyone has theories about what Dickinson was up to and so on. My guess is that she got such a kick out of writing poems and also of keeping those poems in some state of kind of. Process or indeterminate form that that she felt print culture would encroach on the freedom of her imagination, so that she was unlike most poems. The the only equivalent we, we have is is Gerard Manley Hopkins, I think, um, whose work wasn't published uh, much in his lifetime at all. For, for Dickinson, it, it was that that the whole experience of inspiration, of writing, of communicating certain poems to Sue, some to other friends was satisfactory for her. There was enough audience and there was enough appreciation and she was very self-reliant as well. Um, and that she would do everything not to jeopardize that particular imaginative economy as it worked for her. And she would write these things at night and even seeing people she felt would disrupt her imaginative independence. It, and it, it is a sort of interesting, point that Danny Carlin makes in that piece, that on on the one hand, Dickinson can be seen as representative of a a open-ended, very American uh, ideal of the imagination as somehow fluid and uncontained and resisting all convention, resisting all boundaries and overflowing and all, all expansive. And you get this in Olsen or Bob Dylan, who was a great Dickinson fan, in fact. On the other hand, she's all, all this language of aristocracy, that she's always figuring herself as a queen, uh, as somehow an aristocrat, the soul selects its own society, uh, that somehow she is fantastically dis, um, disdainful of the masses, of the hoi polloi. Or well, this is the, the, the point that Danny Carlin makes in his interesting piece, I thought, which goes completely counter to that notion of her as an open-ended democratic poet. So, to what extent you can uh, you read her figuration uh, is up to you, and I think that that possibly to, to look at from the other side of the coin, not the writing process, from the reading process, what has made her so distinctive and popular is that you find what you find in the poems that there is no mm. there is no actual truth there is no final reading or interpretation which can serve that the interpretive process like the writing process uh, is never ending and and that is why each new generation finds new ways of reading and editing dickinson because to edit dickinson is to actually to to read or interpret her that because they exist in this um, unpublished form in manuscripts How you consume them is also an aspect of how you interpret them.
1: Well, you referred there to one of her most striking poems, uh, The Soul Selects Her Own Society. So since we need uh, another poem at this point, I think, why don't I read that out? And then we can pick up that point that that you were just making, um, that uh, Danny Carlin puts forward about its its implicit politics and, and whether we think he's on the right track there. The Soul Selects Her Own Society... Then shuts the door to her divine majority, present no more. Unmoved, she notes the chariots, pausing at her low gate. Unmoved, an emperor be kneeling upon her mat. I've known her from an ample nation. Choose one, then close the valves of her attention like stone. So uh, the phrase you're alluding to in Danny Carlin's piece, uh, Mark, he says it'd be impossible to imagine a more uh, anti-democratic poem. Uh, what do you make of that claim, Joanne?
0: Yes, I think that that's true, and I, I think I I touch on it in my piece as well. I mean, the arrogance is daunting, and in in my piece, I, I kind of I connected to you know this this uh, occasion in which Samuel Bowles co- travels all the way from Springfield to visit her, and um, she refuses to see him. And, you know, he shouts from the bottom of the stairs, come down, you damn rascal. Um, and then she does come down because he's, he's <laughs> called her bluff. But there is this sense in which she's, you know, she's playing games with people. I mean, the poems do that, too. I mean, her character and the character of the poems are, are twinned in certain ways. They elude us and they cultivate their elusiveness uh, you see it too, and you know this, these letters she writes to Sue about avoiding the congregation. You know when she's going to church, and and these very elaborate descriptions of you know, you know I soared like phoenix until the foe was by, and you know and and the and what you know on the page, it doesn't lie low. The, its presence on the page doesn't lie low. Her writing doesn't lie low, and it kind of it's at odds with this invisibility that she's taking pains to preserve. But yes, I think it's an incredibly you know, anti-democratic poem. And, you know, and, and it's there, and you know she her niece recalls this, you know, scene in Dickinson's bedroom where she mimes locking the door and says, Matty, here's freedom. And you know, it's it's a room of one's <laughs> own, but she really did feel that it was her right to shut out the world. And, you know, she was the queen recluse, again, as Bull said, and kind of unabashed. She ran away from her family, you know, she loved to be muggy and cross. She said, I love to hide away from them all. She had no uh, scruples about leaving the burden of the kind of domestic work to her mother and her sister who worked alongside the family servants. And she felt enormously entitled, I think. And and I love that about her, actually. Though, of course, you know, it, it's incredibly bitchy and unappealing in some ways. But I love the strength of character. She wasn't shy, which is what what general readers so often kind of think or have a sense that she was this kind of timid woman dressed in white.
2: Yes she, yes, she was definitely flirting, wasn't she, with kind of ideas of goth, goth the gothic heroine, the mad woman in the attic. Um, she read Dickens and Charlotte Bronte. And sometimes you can definitely think that she is flirting with kind of Bertha Mason character or Miss Havisham character that has sort of been forgotten by time and who are living secluded. So the extent to which she is deliberately playing with those genres um, and with the stereotypes associated with those genres, to what extent she's flirting or teasing us or kind of playing with us as readers as she played or toyed with the the citizens of Amherst is something which is, again, open to interpretation and one of the kind of ways in which she continues to fascinate because we don't know the answer.
1: Yes, and a a lot of that openness to interpretation is the undecidability of tone, isn't it, from, from moment to moment. I mean, the the poems often move through, you know, a vast range of, of tone in, in a short space, and it does make it often very difficult to, I mean, this is a virtue, but it makes it very difficult to pin down exactly what the quality of feeling at a particular moment is. So at the end of that poem, I read out a moment ago, for example, the poem ends with, close the valves of her attention like stone and as, within the rest, you know, the rhetorical structure of the poem, it feels like that should be a triumph. But at the same time, if the valves in question are the valves of the heart, then to end with a heart of stone doesn't doesn't seem like a good way to end. So there's something very kind of imponderable, isn't there, often about the about the descriptions of psychological or emotional states in Dickinson's um, lyric.
0: I suppose it goes back to that poem I, I read earlier as well. It might be lonelier without the loneliness that there was a sense in which. You know it was it was closing off the valves of the heart and turning the self to stone and that was and out of that something else emerged and the attempt to kind of preserve that that absolute solitude that absolute self-containment or self-reliance, you know as Mark's been talking about was really important to her but you know it, it's it's quite dark and depressing in some way in,
2: in that one she's triumphant, but in a lot of other ones she's she's not so triumphant she seems to be experiencing a uh, or to be writing in the wake of some trauma, which is kind of overwhelming and kind of cataclysmic, and which has left her completely bereft of all guides or compasses or sense. And these are all these poems which approach the state of death. That there's a kind of fascination with death, which is a very nineteenth-century mm. uh, mm. thing, but no one has written so many poems in which she is posthumous. You know, I heard a fly buzz when I died, and so on. That that she's never tires of of exploring that transition between life and death. And apparently she was is this right, Joanne? She was quite keen on deathbed scenes. She would show up, you yeah. know, um, uh, and like to watch when people died, which is a little bit ghoulish.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, she was very she was very young as well at this point. She was 14 and her cousin, Sophia Holland, who's also a schoolmate, was dying. And, you know, she had to be led away from her bedside because people were freaked out by how long she stood staring at this, you know, girl in her half-closed eyes. And another, you know, anecdote I mentioned in the piece is um, Benjamin Neaton, a younger attorney who briefly worked with her father and then moved away he actually was the first person who introduced her to Emerson but he moved away and she contacts Everett Hale a complete stranger she's she's never met him to ask you know how he died what was it like in his final hours and she says I'm very sorry but you know I have nobody else to satisfy my inquiries and you just think you know how odd. But it's that kind of, you know, Wittgenstein's idea that, you know, death is not an event in your life, not even the last one. So it's it's the radically undecidable, unknowable thing. Uh, and for her, it was, you know, such an imaginative stimulus, this threshold. And her poems are so interested in thresholds, those dashes, you know, the strange line breaks, the unorthodox punctuation, all of these connections that aren't quite connections and, and where things get locked off. But I think it's also about her interest in in a person becoming a thing, a person becoming an Mm. object that runs through a lot of the poems and that makes them incredibly ghoulish. That characterises a lot of those poems and images of rigidity and coldness. It's also but- the,
2: the Puritan inheritance coming in as well, isn't it? That the, the sense of after, the afterlife is immortality. So when she uses the phrase immortality, is she talking about a kind of um, a biblical afterlife? You know, a life in heaven. And her, her religious skepticism. I mean, she she veered between extreme religious skepticism and some senses. Some poems which you can conjugate as expressions of belief, um, but also the notion of poetic immortality—that the poem, the poems are kind of reaching. For immortality. Sorry, I cut you off, Seamus. You gonna say something.
1: I was just going to say that 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 interest in the posthumous and, as it were, the nearly posthumous um, seems so characteristic, um, so central to her whole mode of literary thinking. That I I wondered if we oughtn't to have an example of it. If you could read us something, Mark, that that shows that that particular death instinct. Within her imagination
2: yes I mean if you um, if you if you google Dickinson and death you would get quite a lot of, um, <laughs> quite a lot of lines would turn up I'll read um it was not death one of my favorite poems because it of its kind of insistent drive towards this state of utter negation which is in some ways mimetic of a death which is not leading to heaven this is a death which is a complete sense of blankness and um, well to use the final words of the poem despair. It was not death, for I stood up and all the dead lie down. It was not night, for all the bells put out their tongues for noon. It was not frost, for on my flesh I felt Sirocco's crawl. Nor fire, for just my marble feet could keep a chancel cool. And yet it tasted like them all, the figures I have seen, set orderly for burial, reminded me of mine. As if my life were shaven and fitted to a frame, and could not breathe without a key, and twas like midnight, some, when everything that ticked has stopped, and space stares all around, or grisly frosts first autumn morns repeal the beating ground, but most like chaos, stopless, cool, without a chance or spar or even a report of land to justify despair mm-hmm.
1: well, one of the things we haven't drawn attention to i suppose which uh, is b- beautifully exemplified in that in that poem and in your reading of it mark is is her fondness for the dash that this is the we've talked about punctuation a few times and that's what we, we've been referring to i suppose throughout that there, that she utilizes you know, just a short line, although actually if you go back to the photographs of the manuscripts, you can see that the short line actually takes all sorts of different forms in her original handwriting uh, as this very characteristic way of, of sort of under articulating or under punctuating the verse how do you respond to that feature of her of her writing style uh
2: it's a way of keeping the poem open isn't it or, or, on one level it, it, it's a way of choosing not choosing um to use one of her own phrases that you somehow can stitch these things together and it's a very deliberate way t- term i'm using there, stitching because they were stitched together as physical objects but they also stitch together the, the different clauses so they exist in kind of opposition to each each other rather than as part of a fully punctuated sentence. So it's a way of keeping the poem in process, which is just what all, you know, 1950s abstract expressionist poets like Frank O'Hara or painters like Jackson Pollock like to do, keep the whole thing fresh and alive and undetermined. So there's very much ways in which she looks forward to postmodern notions of undecidability or indecipherability and openness but at the same time, a poem like this also looks towards the word, work of someone like Edgar Allan Poe, in which people are always <laughs> being buried before they're dead, and that kind of fear of premature burial, that sense of emotions being so overwhelming that you feel like you are dead and un, unable to breathe. And the stitches are almost like breaths in between the different clauses. <laughs> um, Joanne, how, what, what's your take on the the Dickinsonian dash?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... As you, as you say, it is a way of, of, of keeping things open and and keeping keeping things alive. I mean, the dash is interesting because it's a connective, but it's also um you know a puncture, and I think she's playing with that quite a lot. And of course, in a poem like this, it was not death. You know, you have you have the hymn meter. You have you know eight six eight six, and then suddenly in the in the fourth stanza, six six eight six. But then you know the dashes truncate that further and so they're kind of working in opposition to this kind of ghost of common meter that's lying behind the poems and you know it's they're very difficult poems to read so you know you reach a dash and you think how long should I pause here or you know what should I do you know what's the difference between a a line break and a dash and so all of these questions are kind of undecidable you know there's no answer and and you run up against the limits of your own breath when you're you're reading the poems, and and you kind of you decide how to voice them. They're not prescriptive in a way, but they challenge us. But you know, I, I quote in my piece. Denise Levitov talks about the dashes. She thinks there's something kind of horribly arrogant in the dashes, and they bother her. And she, you know, for her, she thinks they're they're very cold. They make her shudder. And she describes you know Dickinson as a bitchy little spinster. And, and there is a sense as well in which these dashes are extremely confrontational on the page. We have to find a way of inhabiting them. And it's not an easy thing to do.
1: It's also true, isn't it, that, that although, as as Mark says, the, the dashes work, as it were, to open up possibility in, in that kind of... Um, you know 1950s spirit but the universe that they describe is one of absolutely you know catastrophic catastrophically restricted <laughs> outcome i mean this poem is only heading in one direction isn't it and it's heading towards despair so there's a kind of a play between the openness of the of the verse as a texture as a kind of linguistic texture and the extraordinary kind of limitation i mean claustrophobic kind of unhappiness of the world that it so often describes
2: yeah i mean her poems are sort of conjugations of interiority, aren't they? Often quite expressionist conjugations of interiority. Uh, and the the denotations are so extreme and refined, and new kinds of emptiness or nothingness or despair is what she finds ways of of expressing in poem after poem. The dashes we should say we all got rid of by Mabel Loomis Todd, and we probably should move on to the terribly weird mm-hmm. <laughs> events which saw Dickinson into publication.
1: Which yes, uh, okay, Let, let's do that. So just to finish off her her biography for um, for people. Um, by the later 1860s, she's almost entirely a, a recluse. She won't even open the door. When people come to see her, she'll speak through the door to them, uh, but won't open the door to them, which itself seems rather a wonderful metaphor for the way that her poems work. As you, as you remarked at one point, Mark, her, her father dies in 1874 and her mother has a stroke, so things are getting darker and darker, really. And then in 1886, at the age of only 55, Dickinson dies herself. And then the story of her life over, the um, no less remarkable story of her afterlife begins. Lavinia, her sister, um, thinks that some of these things, these bits of paper that she discovers in in the house and the poems that she knows Susan next door has um, should be published. And so she turns to Susan in the first instance and nothing much seems to happen. And then, Joanne, she turns to Higginson, who has been one of her several um, literary advisors, and then to someone called Mabel Loomis Todd. So perhaps you should explain who Mabel Loomis Todd was within the dynastic history of the Dickinson family and and the role that she plays in bringing these poems to print.
0: Yes, so Mabel Loomis Todd arrives in um, Amherst in 1881, and she's best remembered as Austin Dickinson's mistress you know, the woman who destroyed his marriage to Susan Gilbert. She was, you know, incredibly beautiful, incredibly outgoing, incredibly ambitious and literary. Um, and as soon as she arrived, she Susan Dickinson um, actually took her under her wing. Um, and she managed to ingratiate herself with the Dickinsons. She spent a lot of time with them. And she never met Emily, of course, who by now was about 15 years into her Um, seclusion but she did pursue her fervently sent her notes um Dickinson's responses are you know very very funny she sends her Mabel sends her a letter when she she goes away to Washington for a few months and Dickinson says the the parting of those who've never met a sort of strange thing indeed but yes after her death as you say uh, Lavinia approaches her sister in law, Sue, with whom she had, had quite an acrimonious relationship. And then Higginson, who says, You know, I'm not sure these poems will work in a volume, and then turns to Todd, who takes the Dickinson cause and, you know, really devotes years and years of her life to you know, deciphering these manuscripts, transcribing them, attending to Dickinson's handwriting, and eventually convinces Higginson to kind of lend his name and expertise to this project of editing Dickinson. You know, she arranges a meeting with him in Boston, and you know, he's still saying, no, I don't think these poems could be made to work for the public. And she woos him with a kind of reading of some of her favourites. So he's he's brought on board, and they set out to edit a, a volume which is published in November 1890, but you know they, they subjected the poems to what they called editorial surgery. So you know the the rhyme schemes are regularized, all of the interesting punctuation is removed, um, titles are imposed on the poems, which Mabel wasn't keen on, but Higginson was insistent on. And the and the poems sold sold extremely well, and the second edition was was prepared to be published in eighteen ninety one. But of course. Behind all of this is the is is the personal lives of everybody involved. So you know, Susan Dickinson is irate that her husband's mistress is is editing Emily's poems because, of course, Emily sent more poems to Sue than to anybody else. She sent sent her about two hundred and fifty poems. She sent about a hundred to Higginson. So there's a what became known as the war between the houses. The, the Evergreens, um, on the one hand, where Susan Trench, she has all of these poems Dickinson's centre. She says, you know, I'm going to make them up to, into a volume when I have the time. Lavinia, Dickinson's sister, wants to get the poems published as soon as possible and has, you know, uh, joined forces with Todd. And, you know, drama ensues and, and and everybody kind of falls out with each other.
1: And they bring out quite a few volumes, don't they? So 1819 and a second series in 1891 and a third series of these poems in 1896. And they all, as you say, involve editorial intervention of a kind that would be absolutely unthinkable um, today. But at the same time, you point out in your piece that perhaps the scorn with which um, Higginson and Todd are, are regularly regarded with by, by modern Dickinson scholars is, is perhaps a bit disproportionate, that their role, um, Todd's role especially in the, in the posthumous life of Emily Dickinson, is something other than merely negative.
0: Yes, I mean there is. You know, you have to wonder if it weren't, if it hadn't been for Todd, whether these poems would ever have come out of that bureau drawer. I mean, Lavinia finds a thousand poems um, after her sister's death, and she can't convince anybody to to help her get them into print, and it falls to Todd mm. to do so. And although the poems were conventionalized and regularised and all of those things, you know, the first publisher they approached, Houghton Mifflin, you know, they were appalled um, that, you know, a man of Higginson's stature would be recommending such weird poems. So the idea that there was some ideal editor in the 18, 1880s, 1890s, who would have printed these poems in a kind of unmediated way seems to me slightly wrong-headed because mm. there really wasn't.
2: There's a sort of interesting link as well between the unconventionality of Dickinson's poems and of her life and the total unconventionality of Austin and Mabel's affair that they weren't living in a menage a trois at sometimes They both kept diaries, didn't they, in which they'd record their orgasms, which were pretty frequent as far as those symbols <laughs> seem to indicate. And they would meet in the homestead downstairs while Emily was upstairs and the was making herself scarce for these sexual trysts with Sue next door uh, at the Evergreens. You you couldn't make it up. It's sort of either a sort of Nathaniel Hawthorne story in which the sort of the devil (laughs) descends on some kind of New England uh, community and and all this piousness is proved to be some kind of uh, uh, have its obverse in a satanic rituals of kind of sexual orgies, (laughs) or it's some kind of lurid kind of melodrama. in in which kind of sex is clearly the key thing bringing Mabel and Austin together. Both their diaries and their letters survive. So it it is a something that, that you, it's described by Lindell Gordon in in a book which Susan Eilenberg reviews for the LRB book called Lives Like Loaded Guns, which is, I think she calls it a steamy beach thriller. Well, maybe that was you, Joanna. I can't remember. Somebody called uh, it that,
0: that was Gordon, but I agree.
2: <laughs> it is the most kind of rollicking account of sexual goings on in this small New England village where everyone is proper. And Austin Dickinson is the most proper person in the whole of Amherst. He's the kind of head of the university. He's uh, um, the most dignified man. And yet here he is flinging himself at somebody, well, they come together. She's 27 and he's 54. Hmm. And they stay together for 13 years until he dies. But, but, but Lyndall Gordon suggests that, that Mabel Loomis Todd really wanted to kill Susan Dickinson. She was a kind of Lady Macbeth figure and was driving, wanted hmm. Austin to murder her, murder her rival in some way. And so it, it gets even more kind of violent and extreme. And the violence, uh, it's suggested in that book, and in the uh, is in some ways mimetic of the violence going on in Dickinson's poems all these volcanoes which are erupting, this lava of repressed feelings suddenly emerging and creating this. I mean, it was partly, perhaps a rather utopian society for David Todd, Mabel Loomis Todd and Austin Dickinson. They seemed, I mean, Mabel Loomis Todd procured women for her husband Mm. and they engaged in foursomes and so on. I mean, this is surely not standard behaviour in the 1880s, is it?
0: (laughs) No, one would assume not. Although David did die in the end stages of syphilis, so it it didn't all work out so well for him. But yeah, I mean, Sue, on the other hand, you know, there's these descriptions of her ripping the, you know, marital wallpaper from the hallway in the Evergreens. And she's just absolutely, you know, wrenched apart by this affair. And, you know, Mabel is incredibly brazen and unapologetic and, you know, obviously much younger than her. I mean, Sue's Sue's the same age as her mother. And, you know, Sue wasn't herself aware that David was kind of complicit in this affair and referred to him as Little Dodd David. And couldn't understand why he was allowing his wife to carry on with her husband in this way. But you know, David. David had a job working at, at Amherst. He was an astrologer, and Austin secured his promotion and salary increases and all that sort of thing. And it was a kind of you know, pro quo He was he was very willing to put up with this man having an affair with his wife because he got the best of both worlds. You know, he was advancing his career, and he was you know able to indulge in philandering of his own.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, textual scholarship has rarely seemed more exciting, has it? No. Uh, and like all good gothic gothic narratives, the, the curse descends to the next generation, doesn't it? Perhaps we should, let's just finish off the the, the story of, of of the of that. Uh, so the Susan Dickinson side of things brings starts bringing out its version of Dickinson's poems, doesn't it? In the nineteen tens and twenties and thirties. And then there's, um, another contribution, a rival contribution from the Todd side of things. But by this stage, uh, all this is being prosecuted by the daughters, isn't it, of the of the first generation?
0: Yes. So after um, there was eventually a lawsuit. Um, Austin Dickinson, before his death, had uh, had said, you know, that he was going to give everything to Mabel. He'd, He'd willed everything to Lavinia with the understanding she would turn it over to Mabel. I mean, the man was a lawyer. He knew he knew how these things worked, but he was too cowardly to put it into writing. So after his death, a lawsuit. Sort of erupted, uh, which, you know, Lavinia claimed she'd been tricked into signing this deed of land over to Mabel. And it came down to Mabel's reputation, really. She was an adulteress. Lavinia was, you know, the surviving men- member of the Dickinson family. And so there, Mabel was forced to return the land. And in retaliation for this, Mabel locked up all of the poems that she still had in her possession, hundreds of poems. She just you know, edited the third volume and she locked them up in a wood chest and they weren't opened for a quarter of a century. So you fast forward, there's this lull and then you fast forward to, you know, 1914 when Sue's daughter, Mattie, um, Dickinson's niece, brings out an edition of poems, poems her mother sent, uh, uh, Dickinson sent to her mother, Dickinson sent to Sue. And then the dedicatory poem is... um, this, you know, one sister had I in the house and won a hedge away, which was mutilated in the 1890s. So, some assume by Mabel, others suggest it was by Austin. But certainly somebody wished to remove evidence of Sue's relationship with Dickinson. And that poem was removed from the fascicle, and Dickinson's sewing holes were tampered with to sort of hide where, where it had appeared. Hmm. And then in 1924, she brings out another edition but the Todd's were you know kind of appalled by this because it appropriated all of Mabel and Higginson's editorial work and named Matty Dickinson's niece as the kind of sole editor. Similarly with the letters you know she published an edition of the life and letters most of which had been lifted from Mabel's 1896 or 1894 edition of the, of the letters two volume edition of the letters I think 272 pages of the letters were identical so the Todd's really felt kind of maligned at that point. And, you know, Mabel was convinced she would outlive Dickinson's niece, Mattie, even though she was 10 years older in this kind of Mabel way where she's going to go on and on, but she doesn't. And so before her death, she asks her daughter, Millicent, who was the first woman to graduate with a PhD from Harvard in geography, if she'll carry on her work and finish editing the poems. You know, she says, Dickinson's niece is come along and her volumes are awful she's made all sorts of sloppy mistakes you know will you take this all upon yourself and she's thinking about it that her mother dies and of course she feels that she has to in the way you, know, you can't refuse your mother's last wish so she abandons her career as a geographer and you know sets about sorting out all of these papers that have been locked away for a quarter of a century and yeah it's a good story and in 1945 brings out you know her own edition of the poems with 600. Poems that hadn't been published by then. Matty was dead. So that kind of freed the way because there was always the threat of a a lawsuit. And it kind of went on and on and on. And and it just followed through the generations, really. This territorial uh, way of behaving.
1: It is. It really is um, editorial gothic. And then we won't go into this bit, but anyway, in the end, it all gets sorted out because Harvard University takes over. And and, uh, and that's where we are now, textually speaking, isn't it? I mean, there are still arguments um, of the kind that Mark has alluded to about whether representing Dickinson in, in print at all is, is a viable option.
2: I, th- I think it's worth mentioning as well that the Dickinson was not popular at all in the sort of 1910s, 1920s, that, that, that she had a kind of vogue as a popular poet, rather sentimental poet, perhaps. Um, and then it wasn't until the new critics like, um, R.P. Blackmer, Ivor Winters, John Crowe Ransom, Alan Tate started doing close readings of Dickinson poems that she suddenly became academically respectable. And then the the academies get involved and Dickinson becomes canonised along with Whitman as the great 19th century poet. So it's a real turn up for the books though, in terms of the 20th century history, Dickinson might easily have sort of sunk without trace uh, in the 19f- 1920s, for instance, she wasn't rated as the great American poet of the 19th century at all. So it was this kind of critical vogue that the new critics had for close reading and the compression of her works uh, and the extent to which you could analyse word choices with that kind of fine-grained particularity in the social context doesn't matter much. So it's a poem that is is its own world. It fits in so neatly with the new critics' ideals or practical criticism as they'd kind of... Um, I'd say sort of adapted them from the work of Richards and Empson. It was that was the great critical turn which made her canonical, and which then led to the Thomas Johnson edition of nineteen fifty five, which printed them, and that's somehow they became uh, they became that became the standard and there were an enormous number of them suddenly people realised that became this tremendously powerful oeuvre for, that no one else had known about until this point In with all its peculiarities. And Johnson made lots of mistakes which Franklin has since corrected in his edition uh, of 1998. But once the Academy gets involved particularly Harvard University as you point out in your piece, Joanne it, it all becomes big money is involved. Yes, And so it, it, it is... Uh, and to that extent, the sense of contingency is what is most striking to me about the whole Dickinson story, that that chest might easily have been lost. Lots mm. of letters were lost. Mm. The extent to which her work wasn't like that of, say, Tennyson or Wordsworth somehow kind of, you know, bound to survive, much more it was the materiality is fascinating to us because the work, so much of it might not have survived, and possibly a lot of it didn't survive. And that, that also has a kind of cliffhanger or de- detective at sleuth element to the whole story of her journey into publication.
1: Mm. Well, shall we come to a close with uh, an example of the kind of Dickinson poem that those new critics that you spoke about relished and, and appreciated?
2: Uh, yes, because a lot of Dickinson seems to be about, I, I mean, I think I mentioned in my piece, there's this tremendous urge to confess and a tremendously strong urge to withhold confession. And that seems to be the sort of source of her obliquity. And she often actually wrote about obliquity in a meta poetical way. Um, uh, and this poem, a very short one, just sums up that obliquity and the ways in which one Teased, one is teased by Dickinson, but never gets to the to the center or the truth. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise, as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind.
0: This episode is from Series 2 of Modern-ish Poets with Mark Ford and Seamus Perry. To listen to their first series and all other Close Reading series from the London Review of Books, sign up to our Close Reading subscription, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings, or click on the link in the description.